This is a story about a family on the Lower East Side of Manhattan almost a hundred years ago. In this story, you are transported to a time and place where every street corner buzzes with potential and every voice can be a catalyst for change. We're talking to author Gail Lehrman about her novel, Across Seward Park, on this Desideratum. A Desideratum is an essential thing. I'm audiobook narrator Teresa Bakken, and I found so many essential things in this conversation. For me, this is not just a chat about a historical fiction. It's also a mirror, reflecting our own times, our own challenges, and our own capacity for greatness. In her storytelling, Gail Lehrman explores the potency of words as tools for persuasion and instigation. She delves into the conflicts that arise when ideology meets practicality, and she explores the delicate balance between self-interest and altruism. At the point this we picked this story up around 1917, the Lower East Side of Manhattan was the most populated square mile, few square miles on the face of the planet. It, wow. It had a population of sometimes 800 people per acre that, with the influx of immigration at the turn of the 20th century. So it was... It was crowded. It was noisy. Uh, you know, people slept in shifts in some of these tenements, and they were yeah. working. But it was also so full of life and mm. so full of energy, political energy, social energy, economic energy. So it, it, it was a wonderful place to write about because it, yes. so, it was so alive. Yes, that's a really... That's a great description because I do think you you feel as you're reading this this vibrancy that you just described, this how alive it is in what feels like great poverty, actually. You know, there's there's just there's a lack, there's just a not enough. And and the level of work and crowding is vibrant, but desperate in some ways, right? Oh, absolutely. It, it, I mean, people came in great poverty and they lived the the exploitation of the labor pool was rampant and putting the pressure of economic exploitation upon them then made a kind of boiling up of change yeah. it it created the the a kind of garden for change because of both the crowding and the exploitation and also the expectations that people had come. You know, America was paved with gold. The streets are paved with gold. Yes. Yes, the dream. The dream. The American the, dream. The dream percolates up through all yeah. of that pressure. And also a lot of, many of the Jew. I mean, this is a Jewish family. I'm writing about a Jewish immigrants, although they were Italian. I mean, they're, you know, it's the whole of Eastern Europe. But many of the immigrants who came from Russia came after the failed 1905 Russian Revolution. So they brought with them an ideology of mm. 
change that they then introduced into this new environment and it took root here. Yes, there was fertile ground for it here. That's right. And in and in effect, everything that we think of as FDR's New Deal, all of the so- social security, unemployment insurance, that all started with these people and these unionizers mm-hmm. in that neighborhood. Yes. Really, even today, we feel the shape of that in our society today. Yeah, that's fascinating. I guess for me, all three of these main characters, we have Irving and we have his sister and then we have her daughter. Mm -hmm. So all three of them, through poverty, through lack, make things happen. They each, one of the most striking things to me about what these points of view had in common was they they push with their words. They each at one point in their stories are able to be persuasive and, and make something happen mm. through their words, that words are powerful to each of each of them. I'm thinking about her being able to get the loan for the store. Right. I'm thinking about Shelly being able to connect with this real estate mogul. I'm thinking about Irving getting this organization to help him search for his brother, even though that is not part of their mission. Right. right? That they're persuasive and um, and are not daunted, you know. Right. Well, that that's very interesting. I I had not made that connection between the three of them. So I'm going to have to think about this as as we're talking about it. I, partly one issue is as a writer, your your main character needs to be an instigator. Mm, mm-hmm. So just because I didn't start out with a strong plot in my mind. There's this distinction in writing between a pantser and a plotter. Yes, yes. I'm a total pantser, complete. <laughs> this is a fly by the seat of your pants. Fly to, this is right. A, fly by so the it, seat it unfolds for you through the characters. You don't have an outline to begin with. Exactly. Yes. I And there were points where I got really stuck and I didn't know what was going to happen next. <laughs> but But one thing I had learned is that if a character is going to be your main character, at some level, it needs to be someone who instigates action. So that's one thing, I guess, playing into it. It's a verbal culture. Juice talk. So these people talk and they use words. That's true. Yes. And words are powerful for them. Yes. Well, I mean, I, I think it was just in contrast to because you you put the reader in the middle of some dramatic conflict that's physical conflict. These oh, yes. are, this is in the, um, our setting is in this time of unionizing mm-hmm. and uh, trying to get r- rights for workers. And these workers band together, see the collective power of their voices, but they are, they're beaten and put down in their attempts to to strike. And it's, there's some, you know, there are some scenes where it's tragic, the violence of it. Yeah. So I guess, yeah. I'm not sure where the question was. I just was, it was such a contrast to me that then you have, you move the story. Just funny, you said you instigate, right? You move the story right. through the power of words. That's very, 
That's very interesting. You, you know, of course, that's historically true that both the the government and big business were in cahoots to repress the unions and unionization. And many union people were killed, arrested. Yes. It, it, unions were not easily accepted by the powers that be. Well, they threatened the, the they, status quo. They threatened the the status. They also it was it was a it was an affront to human greed, right? It was a, <laughs> it was an assault right. to human greed, and yeah, that's that's one of the other sort of themes to me is this idea of selfishness, which is mm-hmm. you know kind of a, an individual trait of human greed, versus um, altruism or sacrifice or something greater. And you play with that a lot in this yes, story, I think. Absolutely. That's absolutely intentional. Thank you for, for noticing that. One of the distinctions, I think, between the, the America of pre-World War II and the America of the 50s and early 60s, that it's almost like after World War II, you had suburbia, you had the the people exiting the city out into, and and then it's like get get for yourself there was i'm going to do for me yes which is a very different ethos from the 30s and for, especially the 1930s in the depression when people were coming together to help themselves and support each other through this terrible time and i also think Often in difficult times, people have to make a decision about, especially people coming out of poverty, especially people struggling for a, a new life. You have to decide how much is about you and how much you're part of a community. I mean, I think that's the conflict between Leo and Miriam, certainly. Yes, and- you see Miriam struggling with that. You give us, Miriam's character is, is altruistic does she does for her family unselfishly you you see how she has impacted irving's life in such a positive way and her commitment to family that's a good spot to pause and listen to a little of the story from miriam's point of view this is the part of the story where miriam realizes a dream She opens her own women's clothing store with a small apartment above it to live in. This is from Across Seward Park, written by Gail Lehrman, read by me. Four weeks later, hauling brooms, mops, buckets, and scrub brushes, I march into my new building, my brother Irving at my side. If only Artie could see this, Mary. You started with nothing. Now look at you. It stays nothing until it doesn't smell. I hand him a bucket. The apartment. Don't come down till it's done. My boss, two minutes and already a sweatshop. He nudges my shoulder and tromps upstairs as I push open the alley door. It's chilly, but with the front door also ajar, the airflow will help fumigate. I'm in my apron, sweeping and picturing the place crawling with customers. When in traipses my husband, a tool bag hanging off his arm. 
I told them at the union hall I had to go help my wife become a capitalist. He's so cocky and proud of himself, I can't resist. And they didn't denounce you as a traitor? Out comes his big Leo grin. I assured them that if you get more than one employee, I'll organize a union. He drops his tools and rubs his hands together. So, where do we start? Twelve years we're married. I never knew Leo the garment cutter is also Leo the carpenter. He says it's the same idea, only wood instead of fabric. Soon, instead of pickles, the place smells of sawdust and fresh wood. He brings volunteers from among his comrades. They do it all. Sturdy shelves on all the walls, three rows of square display tables, wood and curtains for a fitting booth, and a gorgeous oak counter in the back where we'll sit my shiny new brass cash register. A few days later, a workman hauls in two mannequins with a note attached. Use these in your window. I'll get my money back faster. Harry. Leo, busy shellacking the counter, takes one look and dubs the dummies Carla and Frida. After Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels. So, when you're a rich tycoon, you'll remember where wealth really comes from. The night before we open, I make a brisket at Zimmis, our first meal in the new apartment. Irving brings the gift of a bottle of schnapps, which Leo happily cracks open. He raises his glass. To my brilliant wife, may she be the first person in the world to get rich without exploiting the poor. Laheim, Irving tosses back his shot, and they're off. They toast pickles and Jake Feigenbaum's stupidity. They toast the comrade carpenters. They toast Carla and Frida. They toast the lucky customers to come. I don't go in for tippling, but they both insist this is a special occasion. With each of their shots, I take a sip. By the time Irving pours the end of the bottle, I'm feeling silly. So when Leo commands, I make the final toast, standing, glass in hand. To the future. At last, we know where we're going. She does it for her family, unselfishly. But she also, she inherently thinks that her way is best. You know, like her version of unselfishness is the way you're supposed to do it. Well, she she is a survivor. And she's practical. You know, she's yeah. practical the way somebody who has to be practical to survive is like, you know, we're not going to make big dreams here. We got we got to put food on the table. Yeah. We got to pay the rent. It's fine. You want to go be in the union. You got to pay the rent. So her spin on how you relate to the larger issues is grounded differently than Leo's. Because Leo is a, an, a man of ideology. Leo yeah. is a man of belief for all. And there there's especially when there's not enough to go around that can make quite a 
make for quite a conflict. It's interesting that you marry them because they are both, there are echoes of of what he does and what she does, you know, her at this family level and him at this grander level, you know, they are, they are a good match. They are. They really are. Even though the conf- the conflict that happens happens. They, yeah. they, they absolutely, they're both so strong characters. They, they deserve each other. You know, they, they can yes. handle each other. Yes. But she's, she's stubborn. Oh, she's tough. They are both stubborn, I guess, but she really is stubborn and she sticks to it. I always think of Horton the Elephant from Dr. Seuss. She says what she means and she means what she says. Yes. That's how Miriam is. I'm telling you, these these peasant women, they were the the rock that their families were built on. And Mm -hmm. whether in the old country or here, they were just, my family is going to survive. I'm going to, we have to. And I'm I'm very I'm very pleased that you like Miriam because I have had readers who who take great exception with some of the choices that she made and mm-hmm. find fault with her, and yeah. I understand that. But I'm a fan. <laughs> yes, I'm a fan too. I did enjoy her. I was just relating to the fact that she really did think that what she was doing was best. She, at one point in the story, and I don't think this is a spoiler, she decides to not share something with her daughter, with Shelley. She decides to hide a family member from Shelley. And I could feel that you wrote Miriam's intention to protect Shelley. So this was not out of some sort of humiliation or embarrassment about this family member. It was as a form of protection, yes, what she absolutely. wanted for her daughter to experience, right? But yes, from the outside, you could see it as being this callous and hard. And yeah, so the family member we're talking about is Artie. Right. And Artie has been diagnosed with epilepsy. Mm-hmm. And in this time frame, that's a great curse. Absolutely. For him and really for his whole family. That's right. So why did you why did you create the character of Artie? Like when did he come to you as this is an integral part of this family's history and story? That's a good question. I partly so here I am, I don't have a plot. I have <laughs> characters, I have a time. And then I, I needed an obstacle. Yes. Right? I have theater training and theater background. Mm-hmm. And one thing that when you're building a character on stage is one of the major questions you ask yourself is, what's that character's obstacle? When they walk into their room, what is their intention? What do they need to do? I yeah. need to provide an obstacle. And the political stuff in the, the, the union building and that is a broader thing. I needed to give Irving a real personal goal. That's where Artie came from. Yeah. Yes, Artie's relationship to Irving is how we first meet Artie. And Irving has just such a sincere love for this older brother. And mm. and so it's heartbreaking when Artie's condition becomes dramatic and dangerous and and he and rather than having a treatment at the time in this time period they, he was removed from the family disappeared from them 
And it's then part of Irving's quest through the story to find him, to reconnect with him. And so that is a big part of Irving's storyline. But it's also, it Artie also becomes a big part of Miriam's storyline. You know, you've woven how she re- reacts, responds. They have different reactions. They handle it differently. In a funny way, the story opens with, in effect, the destruction of the family unit. Yes. And the most loving presence in that family is Artie, who is taken away. Mm -hmm. And then both Irving and Miriam separately have to figure out how to reconstruct. If anything, Artie represents the, the, the empathic loving heart of the family that they both then need to look for and find. Yeah. I don't know if I had it that abstractly in my head when I wrote it, but, but I think that was part of it Mm -hmm. to give maintaining your humanity under very difficult circumstances is challenging. And I, I feel like both Irving and Miriam succeeded. I think Shelley's another question entirely. Yes. But yes, you do leave us. Shelley is our current generation as the book is ending, really. Miriam and Irving are are fading into history, and Shelley is forward-facing into, we're in the 60s. And you do, I thought that you very purposefully left that not unresolved, but not neat and tidy either. There's right. because that's how family is, right? I wasn't dissatisfied with the way that you that you where you picked your ending spot. Oh, but good. I love too that your characters could keep going in my mind. Good. I'm pleased to hear that. Yes. I mean, Shelley is to me, both Shelley and Miriam are strong women yes. who are capable of having a goal and going for it. Also, I was playing around with, I'm old enough to have lived through the 1950s and to have been a a child in the 1950s. And it was a colder time in a funny way. It was, um, people were more individualized. And so Shelley is also a woman of that time. And Feminism hadn't kicked in in the early 1960s and in the 50s when she grew up. So there's a little bit of that element playing in it, too. Yes. She personifies what you mentioned earlier about this sort of disintegration or dispelling of the collective inner city mechanism of we're all in this together to some degree to this everybody's in it for their own. And she sort of personifies that suburbanification maybe of yeah. of our our of community she is looking for how to improve her life how to get her dream her version of the american dream right which looks different than miriam's yes and each generation does right absolutely it's a very common first generation second generation thing that happens yeah i guess i see the suburbs you know the little nuclear family in their own little nuclear house is very, very different from imagine 800 people per acre. It, there's a gain and there's a loss. And I very, I very much wanted, that was actually what I was interested in, was 
it's so easy to look back on the on the poverty and on the the exploitation and say, oh, good, you know, my family moved up from it. Look, now I've got my own home and we're prosperous. Yes. And but something was also lost. Mm-hmm. And I think that I was playing around with that a lot. Yes. That's a great way to describe it because I do think there's a richness. It was one of the first things you said about this story. There's a vibrancy and a richness. You said earlier, like there's a there's the larger picture. And then there's this, you bring us into a family and you show us their their conflict, their challenge, how they deal with it. But you are always seeding it within this larger picture of collectively we are stronger. Yes. um, And that we, while we are taking care of ourselves, uh, removing blinders enough to see what we're all striving for, where we have common ground with people is is really powerful right yeah yeah and and historically it it had great effect as i said earlier the whole of what we call of fdr's new deal the whole of the social safety net came from those people and their demands and their work and they're not giving up even in the face of great opposition yes that's a great point i think the other thing for me is that there are moments in this that are very uh, hopeless and dire. You know, these people do try to collectively raise up their voices and then they're just squashed and unsuccessful and their sacrifice seems for naught. And it's so, it's difficult to not become hopeless. Uh, and yet this is historical fiction in that we we know from our vantage point today right. that they were successful. That they were successful. So for me, one of the relevancies today is that it is a very hopeful story about mm-hmm. the power of collective voice. Yes. Right. It's not an easy task. It's yeah. just simply not. It's hard work and you have to stay at it. Yes. And also just that there is there is the corruption of human greed. Oh, yes. Always. 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 This is a constant. Absolutely. It never goes away, isn't it? It's just shocking to me how it just doesn't go away. And and that's the other thing. The struggle never goes away either. Maybe that's why I had it fail, is that the struggle never goes away. It's never like you can just sit back on your laurels and say, ah, okay, we're done. We don't have to do anything. I'm going to go up to my little house and not worry about it. You just can't do that. Democracy takes vigilance, constant vigilance. Yes. Yes. Was there anything else that I that I didn't give you a chance to talk about that you wanted to talk about? I don't think so. I think we covered a lot. Oh, good. Okay, well, then I you'll know. The last question I like to ask is connected to the title of the podcast, which is about essential things. So I just like to ask storytellers that share this time with me for you, and you can answer it anyway. You can answer it as a writer or a former English teacher, former programmer, all of the many hats you've worn. For you, what do you think is most essential? Community. Mm. Community. I could not have written this book without my writing community. Yeah. Um, And for me, I do best when I'm embedded in a community of my friends and peers. 
So yeah, yes. that's essential. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because we, throughout our lives, our community changes. Oh yeah. There's new community yes. at each stage. I think there are some people who are comfortable in, I, I hesitate to say it, in isolation. Uh, and that's fine. But I think better in the presence of my friends. Mm. I learn better. I function better in the presence of other people. I have never found writing an isolated activity. Yeah. <laughs> Let's put it that way. There's always, interesting. always been people either directly in my head or or directly there. Yeah. That's an interesting take. I think a lot of authors feel alone in their work. So that's very fascinating that for you, it's a collective or communal experience. Yes, very much, very much. The book started out of a a workshop. I was sitting in a room with, you know, six or seven other people. And I write online every morning from seven Mm -hmm. to eight with a group of people. Community. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Well, thank you so much, Gail. Thank you. Thank you very much. This is really fun. I hope you enjoyed getting to know Gail Lehrman as much as I did. I'll put a link to the rest of the story across Seward Park in the show notes. Thanks for listening. <laughs>